Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias. How you doing today, Elias? Uh, I'm doing good, Roger. Thanks again for having me on the show. Um, it's a great day. How are you? Good. Seven straight weeks. Negative market returns seven yeah. weeks in a row. You know what? This morning when I was driving to work, I just I decided I'm going to start. I'm just going to be positive because there's enough negativity out there. And maybe you think I thought this was funny. Maybe you will. I don't know if you will. Maybe the listeners will. But so you know how whenever the market's at all time highs, people like advisors and other people say, well, we're due. We're due for a correction. We're due for a bear market. So my new slogan is we're due for a bull market. 80% of the time, the market goes up. I was laying in bed last night looking at the futures and they were green. NASDAQ's up like one and a half. And all I could think is it's going to be negative by the end of the day. Like even my, my mentality of what's going to happen the next day, because there's been so much selling pressure, it's just like, well, it's green overnight. It's going to be negative by the end of the day. And I don't know if I'll be right or wrong, but it's seen that that's what it's done the last few weeks. So trick you midday, it goes up and next thing you know, you're negative. And I had one of the advisors come in the office and we're talking about this and we're talking about how the market's down, but it's not like it's down nearly as much as COVID, but you'd think in people's minds, they've lost as much as they lost during COVID. And we had the discussion about this is just this grinding selling pressure that comes in every single day. So clients have seen negative statement in January, February, I think it was up a little bit in March, April's negative, May's going to be negative, and it's just grind lower. And I was talking with him, I said, you know, I wouldn't expect, and we're kind of talking to clients about this too. This isn't like COVID, you're not going to get back to your account value in 90 days. That's just not realistic. And I know that you follow LPL research a lot. And, and I thought this was interesting. They just released this this morning. And it said, what happens after a bear market starts? First, after entering a bear market, the medium gain, median gain for the S&P 500 has historically been 24%. Stocks were higher one year later, seven out of the last 10 times. The three bear markets that were down a year later were 1973, 2001, and 2008. Medium number of calendar days for bear markets to bottom. And I think this is important because people may see, hey, it's a bear market, this is the bottom. The, the median, so the middle was 81 days with five of them being less than 46 days. So if we hit a bear market Friday or whatever, whatever it was, I don't know if we actually officially hit it. I know we intraday traded to a bear market. 46 to 81 days, that's probably when you're going to see the bottom in this market. If we look back at history. Yeah, right. That, that would be what, what history suggests and also suggests that 12 months later, um, you know, the market has gained 24%. And that's, I think that's a good point you brought up about COVID was all the gains came back so fast. And I really think investors should just set your mentality on, you know what, this year for 2022, your portfolio could be down on the year. Does that matter? Well, yeah, in the short term, it matters. It doesn't feel great, but the market's never not made a new all time high. And 
I think if you just get your expectations right, and then let's say there's a rally, and let's say a new high happens this year, well, you're going to be happy about that. But if you if your expectation is what happened in COVID, and I think I just want all these gains back in the next three months, and it doesn't happen, you're going to be disappointed. So I just I think get kind of start really changing your expectations and and have reasonable expectations as well as what could happen the next until the end of the year and then certainly the next 12 months if i was an investor this is the expectation i would set for myself because i like to set myself up to not be disappointed we've had this talk before elias when we go on vacation with our kids i told my wife we just went to florida here a couple months ago i just set the expectation that this is going to be a disaster it's going to be horrible flight's going to be horrible like the worst possible scenario can't be disappointed investors should do the same thing because we don't know what's going to happen but if i was an investor i'd be looking at these statistics i'd plan on the market grinding lower for at least another 81 days will it i don't know but if you set your expectation that most of the summer is not going to be much fun okay you can live with it this is the other key number. The recovery from bear market lows has taken an average of 19 months. 19 months to get back. So think about it. If we're at a bear market low today, when you're really looking to see your account value get back? 19 months from now. Interesting time, October 2024. <laughs> What'll be going on uh, then? Actually, it won't be October. It'll be... You know, mm, What's 17? Yeah, it'll be January, February 2024, election year. How many people have- So then just, just as soon as we start, the market gets back, then we're going to have all the, uh, well, if so-and-so gets elected, that's going to be terrible for the market. How many people have said, and this is not a non-political non -political statement, how many people have we heard Biden's tanking the market? And what's our response every time? Oh, I've heard that from a lot of people. Our response every time is the president doesn't really- dictate what happens to the market. We've done so much research on this pre even election. It's dictated by monetary policy. So if we're blaming a bad stock market on Biden, what's going to happen when he hits an all time high in 2024? Because that's likely what would happen to get back. Just think about it. To get back to where the market was, that means we're back to an all time high. And actually the, the time, yeah, the timing could act, could work out that way. It absolutely could work out that way. More than likely, it's going to happen that about midsummer in the election year, you're going to see an all-time high in the market. I don't know. I can predict. Harry Dent can predict. Grantham can predict. I get to predict too. I don't know. But it could happen. In fact, based upon these numbers, that's exactly about when it would happen. 22 months. 81 days plus 19 months. That's 21, 22 months. Yeah. 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 And so here on the, um, the recovery from a bear market has taken an average of 19 months. And the next part of that data set was, but just seven, if not accompanied by a recession. So I think that's another thing I've been talking with clients about. I think the two things I'm really looking at when making decisions right now is when, if, if we actually are in a recession and then inflation numbers, um, cause I think, you know, if the GDP numbers come out negative again, and then it's official, we're in a recession. And then by the end of the year, if inflation is still running as hot as it is now, I think that would, I think that would be very bad for investor, uh, sentiment. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to make predictions on what that's going to do to the price, 
But I think if we're not in a recession and inflation starts coming down, I think you can make a more compelling argument that at that point we might start another uh, bull market rally. If we don't get a recession, think about what we talked about last week's show. The market was priced for 100% probability of a recession. Well, what actually happens? Everybody think if we don't get a recession, but the market's planning on one, that's better than expected news. Arguably, that could push the market higher substantially. Absolutely. Here's the other thing that's interesting. You watching the price of the 10-year bond? I haven't today. Hit a high of like 315. It's like 285. So right. I, I started thinking about this. How many people bailed on their bond positions that they wrote? That core bonds through April were down like 9, 10%. What about all those people that bailed on those positions? What if they just moderate? What if interest rates moderate a little bit. The Fed could increase the federal funds rate. That doesn't mean that the 10 year yield is going to continue to kick up. The market's already priced in seven or eight rate hikes. What if, what if inflation moderates? What if it doesn't stay at eight and a half percent or 9%? There's a lot of what ifs out there. There's a ton right of what now. ifs. And it's why taking this short term view of the market is so dangerous because you don't know and nobody knows. And by the time we do know, the trade's over. So with that said, just a little market commentary, but one of the things that, you know, I think you brought up the other day was that credit card balances are on the rise. And this makes sense. We've been used to this. And my wife and I chatted about it the other night. People are used to this free money. We had two years of free money. We had child tax credits, we had PPP loans, we had stimulus checks, we had all this free money into the system, okay? People don't just change their spending habits that quickly. And I think what's happening is people are used to having their free money. Well, they're out of the free money now. Inflation's on the rise. So where do you, where do you go if you still wanna take the vacation? Credit Visa, card. Visa, and you know what's gonna happen next? They're gonna have to pay that credit card off. They don't have any cash, how are they gonna do it? It's a good question. Their 401k. They're gonna to go to their 401k and guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna to go to the 401k at the wrong time. Right when the market's down, 25%. Think about just all these, all these culminating things that could lead to somebody making a bad decision. So what I thought about doing is talking today about why a 401k loans are typically bad ideas. But it's the first place people are going to go if they, they're not going to go to the bank, their credit cards are maxed out. They're going to grab that loan on that 401k. Yeah, How, have you, you had need, any, if, I haven't had any calls to ask me about this yet, but I know it's coming. Well, and we, the, well, the reality for us, we may not have any calls, but hopefully we're doing a good job working with our clients so they wouldn't resort to doing something like this. But yeah, I guess if you're in the situation where 401k loan is something you're looking at doing and the market's down in the ballpark of bear market territory, I mean, those are things that those can blow up your long-term investment planning because you're nope. just compounding your losses. You're paying, a, if it's early, you're paying a penalty. Well, I guess if it's a loan and you get it paid back, but it's just, to, to me, there's way too much risk in doing something like that. 29%, this is from TIAA Craft. 29% of people who have a 401k or defined contribution plan of taking out loans. So a third of the people take loans out 
from their 401k. Number one reason, pay off debt. So they're taking, they're just robbing from their retirement plan to pay off the debt that they accrued. And that's what it goes back. That's what I, that, that was my whole thought behind this was, hey, look, we're used to the free money. That's gone. Price of things are way higher now. I'm used to, what about the people that bought homes they couldn't afford because they thought they're gonna, they weren't gonna spend money. Think about COVID. You were locked indoors. You didn't spend any money unless you're online shopping. The world's ba open back, well, not the world, but the US is open back up. People are going on vacation. They're they're spending discretionary dollars they weren't spending. So the person who was inside during COVID is like, yep, I can afford that house. That's 200000 more. Yeah, they probably could afford it when they were getting a stimulus check and they weren't spending any money. There's no place to spend your money. Well, now they want to get the lifestyle back, but they have this house they spent 200000 more on. They're still going <laughs> to spend it. There goes the debt, which is 46% of the reason people take a loan. And I know just... I can speak for for my house and our budget. If we could pretend like the restaurants are still closed, you know, our savings rate would be better. Because in COVID, you know, our savings went up in COVID too, just like everyone else. And the main thing is, is we're a family that likes to go out to eat. And when you do that, we go at least once a week, most weeks, probably twice. So how much over a year, over two years, three years, like how much extra spending is that? I don't like to think about it because it's something I enjoy to do, but it's, you know, we're all in the same boat. No one, no one changed their lifestyle because of the pandemic being forced to, right? You change your lifestyle because you were forced to, but ultimately you weren't going to change your lifestyle. I know what I spent on food and entertainment because my accountant let me know it's more <laughs> than I should have. Yeah. But. I was at the grocery store the other day. My wife said, hey, I'd like to have fish tacos. So I went to New Pioneer Co-op. By the time I walked out, just to make fish tacos, you know, I didn't, it wasn't crazy. I got walleye, won some white fish. You know, I got pico de gallo, guacamole, tortillas, salsa chips, the special cheese. It was like $81. And I'm like, I think it would have been less expensive for me actually to go to the Mexican restaurant. Just so order your take out. Well, your whole thesis that we would save money buying at home, I think is reasonable. But not with the price of groceries. I went the next day, I went and got burger. I literally went and bought hamburgers for the girls, myself and my wife. Well, two hamburger patties was like eight bucks. Right. Wife, so if we like if we just did carry out and just ordered like entrees to go this the comparing groceries to doing that it's, it's probably similar. comparable but when we go out to eat we order a drink and it's all the upsell items is what increases our spending it's on the appetizer yeah it's appetizer a drink because it's an you know we like to go for an experience not just for the meal yeah we go for the for the main too. course you know what i mean for sure i just it got me thinking when you said that i mean i went to the grocery store like three times this weekend because now i'm over buying all these groceries that sit in my fridge and then we don't use them so i just go when i need to go it's like 50 80 bucks every time so maybe the solution i should have a rule for our house that we only order takeout we can't go sit in the restaurant that would never work for me because you know where i go and i like <laughs> to sit and wait for the food yeah <laughs> I've got my one little special sushi spot in town where I like to have my one cocktail and wait for him to make it. And because it's better if you drive it to your house. 
I, I don't want the Uber Eats or whatever guy has been smoking 11 cigarettes to put in his car. And oh, wow. I listen to you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I don't know who, it doesn't matter. I don't know who's driving it. I don't know. Like, I just don't want my food in someone else's possession. Yep, I understand. For lack of better terms. But back on track to this 401k loan. So a couple of things in, you know, I view, and I don't know how you view this, Elias, but I view the 401k loan strictly as like last resort. Like for me, I have a 401k if I need it. It's like, hey, look, I have a bill I need to pay. It's not to go consolidate debt because that's what people are doing. They're racking up credit card bills and feeling better about paying it from their 401k because at least they're not paying the interest of the credit card company. But that's just going to put them back in the cycle of racking up the credit cards again. They never had to work out any of the pain. Like I view that as, hey, we had a medical emergency. We've spent all of our money that we have the free cash. I need 50000 to pay a medical bill. Like That's a reasonable reason to invade your 401k. And I, I, I agree with that. So I, yeah, a debt consolidation tool, absolutely not. Um, but at the end of the day, I want to let my family go without, you know, I'm not going to let my family starve when I can take a loan from 401k. And if we had a medical event that required a lot of money, I'm not going to let my family suffer. But I, yeah, as far as debt consolidation, there's other ways to do that. There's other other strategies you can implement, but yeah, it's a, to me, that's a source of absolute last res, uh, resort that I would do something like that or recommend someone do something like that. Yeah. I don't know as if I've ever recommended somebody take a 401k loan. In, in most cases, there's other ways to get there You know, in, oh, yeah. in most, most cases, but that's for everybody to decide themselves. I mean, there are a few advantages. You have low interest rates on that loan that, you're not paying 18% of the credit card company. The problem is it just doesn't fix the behavior that got somebody into the predicament or mess that, that they started with. So I don't know. I, I have this feeling that over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to be seeing or people are going to ask us or we're going to see on 401k statements that they've taken out a loan and it's probably to pay off lifestyle. It's probably to pay off their Peloton bike. I don't know. You know, I was watching Ouch. some, I was watching something the other day and they were talking about, um, Peloton, you know, the stock price of Peloton's down 95%. And someone jokingly said, well, go figure. We all went long and Americans liking to exercise. <laughs> like, I mean, why? And they made a point, like every couple of years, there's like this new snazzy thing. That's going to like yeah. this new snazzy workout equipment. So and I it's have, gone. It's like a New Year's resolution. It was cool for like six months. You're like, it's over. We have a Peloton bike in the basement. I don't think my wife's been on it for three months. Have you used it? No, I didn't want it. I it don't want to ride a bike. You. So I have I have some good insight on that. I just this weekend watched um, an interview with the hedge fund manager, and they were talking about this topic. And he was talking about how he's never been interested in investing in exercise companies. And he said... The, he goes, the real reason is growing up, one of my best friends, his dad owned an exercise equipment store and he was very good at always finding out what is the next thing that people are going to want to buy. So he goes, so I just have a firsthand experience of seeing boom and bust and all of these different ways to get people to exercise. And, you know, a good friend of mine, his, and he's friends with the dad too, because it's one of his best friend's father. 
um, he goes and he's he's become an expert on that market and he he's always selling the hottest thing, but then the next year it's something different and the next year it's something different. So I thought that was a pretty insightful take on on that business and how it actually works. Yeah, I'd, a couple other things, you know, for the last 24 months, we've heard how there's this massive kind of discrepancy in wealth gap where, you know, and, and arguably, arguably, I agree that during COVID and post COVID, the wealthiest Americans probably, well, I shouldn't say the wealthiest, but if you own stocks, if you own real estate, if you owned assets, you did well during COVID. Yeah, well. I think there's a lot, there's a lot of successful people that are significantly better off right now than pre-pandemic. And in the last four months, what's happened? Well, <laughs> people people's wealth been, on paper's gone down a lot. It's gone down. So it got me thinking, and part of it is Doug Wagner from WMT forwarded me this article, um, actually right before we're doing the show, it says, this is how much money Americans think they need to be to be considered wealthy. And we hear the number, what's the number you think? Because I know you haven't read the article because we just got it. What do you? Th what number do you think people perceive Elias as wealthy? Like if I gave him a number like, oh yeah, you're rich or you're wealthy from a net worth standpoint, not income, this is a net worth. From, okay, sorry, it's from a net worth yeah, or? To be considered wealthy and then can, to be considered rich, two numbers. And this is what other people think? Yeah. I think, I think in general, most people think once you have a million dollars, you're, you're considered wealthy. So in two, th in this survey, um, Americans said they needed 624,000 in net assets to live comfortably. Malo would take 1.9 million to be considered rich. And then is wealthy another level of that? Or how is that? It doesn't spell that out, but here's, what's interesting. Both of those numbers are lower than pre COVID. Than what people thought before yeah. COVID pre COVID. In 2019, they thought you needed 748,000 to live comfortably and 2.2 million to be considered rich. So I think that's interesting, Elias. It's went down. Why do you think it's went down? I think I have some opinions on why maybe the numbers went down as to what people perceive, but why do you think? So right off the bat, I have no idea why why that number, why that would go down. To me, that's some that's like a target that would always be creeping up. Two, so what I've, are your yeah? What two are your theories. thoughts? One, people during COVID realized they could live on less. That's one, or they were living on less, so they're like, "Well, I don't need as much." Or two, they had stocks or bought Bitcoin or whatever it was, and now they feel rich, so they believe they need less to be rich. If they get closer, right? So let's say there's a bunch of people that now have $1.1 million. Like, oh, well, I feel rich. It's not 2.2 million because now I have a million one. Like, I feel good. That could bring the number down. Remember, this is what average Americans think. The average Americans don't have 1.9 million. Because if you go ask a wealthy or rich American if they think 1.9 million is rich, what are they going to tell you? No. 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 I mean, if people think about the numbers, think, let's just back into the numbers. I'm going to use it around number of 700,000 of net worth. They're saying net assets. Well, that probably includes their house. For most people, their house is probably one of the largest assets they have. So let's probably. just say they have 500,000 investable assets. How much, how much money do you have to spend in retirement? You're basically living on social security 
and supplementing a small amount with what you've saved, even $2 million. Someone who has $2 million, arguably in retirement, they're stripping off. If you've used the 4% rule, which is debatable whether that's a real thing or not anymore, but just say the 4% withdrawal rule, they're taking out 80,000 a year pre-tax. I don't know anybody out there that would tell you $80,000 a year of income pre-tax is rich. Yeah, and, and by those metrics, you're still living on a budget and within your means. You can't just spend. Like, I guess to me, when someone who's wealthy or rich, like you can just spend money because you have so much that it really doesn't matter how much you spend. Most people, I mean, the 99% of people are not in that boat, never going to be in that boat. Two million doesn't put you in that category. Yeah, I don't think so. You're dependent upon, I mean, even at $2 million, because number one, most people that accumulate $2 million weren't making 60, 70, 80,000 when they were working. They're making 170,000. Yeah, so yeah. they're expecting to live on more. So yeah, they have social, you know, they're going to have two decent social security checks probably. And then 80,000, but it's still not getting back to where they were. You know, it's really hard to accumulate enough money in a retirement plan, unless you were diligent from day one to match the lifestyle. If you were making 150 or 175,000 as a household income, most people that have household income, 200,000 bucks will find it challenging to replace that in retirement, unless they just did a very, very diligent job when they were 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 years old of starting to save then. So do you think, okay, so those numbers coming down a little bit. And I think what you meant, so people's like their returns and their stock portfolios. So someone who had 800,000, now they're up to like a million or 1.1 million. Do you think part of it is maybe what people now expect for future returns as well because of the last 12 years of returns in the market? Well, what have they been? 13, 14% a year in the market for the last, take this year out up until this year, probably in that range. I don't know exactly, we could go back and look it up, but yeah, their expected result is probably skewed. Part of that's skewed because you had the meltdown of 2008 and 2009, the financial crisis. So it let the market run farther faster. But yeah. I just think that people feel like they have more money now. So then, oh, well, yeah, to be rich really isn't that much because now I feel rich. You follow that? Yeah, I think so. You're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> say, say it again. Okay. So I think about this now. If now I have $1.2 million and I feel rich, I may no longer think that I need $2.2 million to be rich. I feel rich at $1.2. So right. I could bring the number down. So the problem with these, with all of these kind of surveys, they're not surveying people that are in that category. They're just surveying people. What are the controls on this? If you survey a bunch of people who have a net worth of $100,000 and make 80,000 a year, rich to them is different than the person making 200,000 that has two and a half million. And certain, yeah, and I'm guessing the results would be wildly different if you surveyed the top half of 1% of people in our country that have a lot of the wealth what they would define as rich. I bet I bet it would come out and people would think, well, I'm never going to be rich then. Well, you think about it, if you just, if you surveyed the top 1%, that $2 million, that would be like the poverty line for them. That's terrible to say, but yes, it 
No, I, yeah. I don't think it is. But if you look at the lifestyle that the top half percent or one tenth of one percent live, well, right. But it's going to make that's other, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I agree. It's with probably you. like a bad income tax bill <laughs> if they're paying. That's a whole other, whole another subject. Yep. But I, I thought that that was kind of interesting as to what people think, and you know. The name of the show is Behind the Wealth because the idea is we want to help people build wealth and give them the tools to do it. Um, so we should talk about what people actually perceive as wealthy. Molly threw an article our way from Think Advice the other day. And, you know, because we talk about millennials all the time. You're one of those, I think, right, Elias? I am, yep. I always get confused. I can never remember if I'm a millennial, a Gen X, or Gen Z. I don't know. I, I never get you're the bore, You're borderline. You're either a young Gen X or an old millennial. I'm a, I'm a tweener. Yep. You're, you're in the tweener age. But this article talks about how there's going to be four types of millennial retirees. And this, this is based on a survey from Schwab Investment Research. But it, it really kind of talks about the shifting values in retirement and what baby boomers thought was valuable to them. This millennial generation is going to think is different, you know, what they value. And I think you see that. I think that even today, and I, and I see this on social media, which social media is everywhere. I feel like my generation and younger, they value experiences more than things. I agree with that. And I know you're younger than me, so you probably have more purv purview to that. But I just think that I see people going on vacations versus buying the fancy car. I, I agree with that. And I, I do think... Um the millennial generation, I think there is a lot of value and experience for them. And one of the things I thought was interesting when I was reading the article was for baby boomers, it's important to have a distribution strategy and continue to grow their wealth. And okay, a lot could change for millennials, right? Millennials aren't even, they're still 20 years out from the oldest ones retiring. Um, I thought it was interesting though, how the data would suggest now that continuing to grow wealth won't be that important, but having experience, uh, the, having experiences throughout retirement will be more important, important than that, which I think, you know, I think will lend to our business because, you know, we're in the financial planning business. So if someone wants to ha spend and grow their wealth, we can help them achieve that. If someone wants to spend, um, I actually, I met with a lady a few months ago who she, her one of her goals was she wants to spend all of her money by the time she was 87 because that was the age of her mother when her mother went to a care facility now is her life going to work out that way no one knows but she asked well can we just plan on that i said absolutely we can build a plan that you can spend every dollar by the time you're 87 years old well that's actually i think your client had a valid rationale there and here's why even if she doesn't die at seven, what's her quality of life? It's not going to be what it is today at six. And she's retiring at 62. So on the younger side of the spectrum, I had this talk with my dad because, you know, they're getting near retirement age and my mom's four years older than dad. I said, well, dad, if you work to your 67, mom's going to be 71 or 70, like 71. I go, how many good years do you guys think you have to go do, th do the things you want to do in retirement? think about it. I, and no one wants to think about like, what's the threshold that my body doesn't allow me to do these things. 
But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. So I think more people should have this kind of look in the mirror and say, hey, what's important? Saving for four more years if I can retire, which lends itself to having a financial plan and doing all the prerequisite to make sure it works out. But if you can retire at 63 or 64 with a high level of confidence and you're working because you think you're going to be better off, likely or not. I mean, most people either are there or they're not. And what I mean by that is if you come in here and you say, hey, I want to retire on 8000 a month and you're 62 years old, I want to retire at 65. Well, if it works at 65, it probably works at 63. Or it's just not going to work. Yeah, that's not a, right. There's really not like a borderline. You don't, you don't have the time to situation. make up. I mean, right. my dad mentioned, well, yeah, but I could save X amount. I said, what's saving 75,000 bucks more going to do for you? Hardly anything. Like if you look at the statistical, you know, the, the impact on probability of success, it's like non-existent. What? What's it going to do? It's not statistically relevant. Is your time anyway. worth more than 75,000? That, that, that's what it becomes. That's what I think these millennials see is that, you know, my time's worth more. I actually had this talk with someone the other day. They're going to retire for a couple of years and then go find a job to do. And it got me At thinking. At what ages? He's in their 60s, but he's like, hey, I just want to take a couple of years off and just, I want to work. Just, I want to take a couple of years off. So I'm like, well, yeah. And maybe you said it to me. Why wouldn't everybody just retire till they're seven, retire at 60 till they're like 72 and then go back and get a job for the last few years? Because what are you doing when you're 72 That's, anyway? Yeah. The the other day I, I brought that up and um, I just I think I said something like I don't understand why more people just don't like retire at 55 and just plan on delaying your Social Security until 70. And then when you're in your 70s, if you have to go back to work. Go get an easy part-time job I'm just sure to we, make ends meet. I think we read or did a show on this like a year ago where the youngest generation may have a different idea of work. And what I mean by that is if people start getting life expectancies that are 100 and 110, which arguably it was like seven years ago that I think Rick Eidelman came out with the, the article and said the first person who's going to live to be 150 years old has already been born. Well, if that's the case, people aren't going to be able to work from the time they're 20 to 60. Think about that. I'm, there's, there's no, there's people, if people live to be 120 years old, our system's not set up for people to work from 20 to 60. They'll have to work longer. Well, what if yeah. people decide, hey, I'm going to work 10 years. I'm going to take a two-year break. I'm going to work another 10 years, take a two-year break. We're going to, so they can work longer, but they get these little intermissions in between. I know I read an article about this, but it's kind of a cool idea. Like, why don't you go to work for 10 years, take a couple years off, save enough money, take a couple years off, go do what you want to do, and then go back to work after all rejuvenated and you know what you want to do. That's a great idea. I love that idea. You don't get to do that idea. <laughs> oh, I, that's for everyone else, <laughs> not for me. So everybody else okay. that doesn't work here. Okay. Um, but I know I read an article, but I think it just highlights that people are probably going to retire differently at some point in the future. Yeah, and I agree with that. They've broken millennials down into basically four, four category types. Practical achievers. Those are the ones who prioritize financial security more than their other peers. There's going to be the ones that, just like anything, these are the ones that are going to do the great job saving, 
they have a continued importance on their digital investments and digital currencies, and they're, they're really concerned with their financial security. The second group are the on-trend friends. They prioritize keeping up with the latest like stuff, the trends and shopping with their friends. Like they're worried about doing fun things with friends. The third category was relaxed millennials. Uh, they're just kind of satisfied doing what they do. Okay. Um, less focus on finances and they want to do hobbies, relaxation, me time. That kind of sounds like me. I don't think I'm really a relaxed minimalist, but I do like hobbies in my free time. I, I was actually, when I was reading this, I, cause I think a lot of people that know me would just assume, okay, number one, a practical achiever, but the, certainly the last several years, I've probably transitioned to more relaxed minimalist. I mean, being responsible with my money is always going to be important to me. It always has been, but I'm not as focused on that. I'm a lot more focused on what that allows me to do in terms of lifestyle, hobbies, um, relaxation and all that. Cause to me, that's really the, to me, the most valuable thing we all have is our time. So if I can spend my time the way I, the way I like to spend it, then that's the number one thing for me. So maybe I'm now a relaxed even though I don't know how relaxed I actually am, but maybe I'm a minimalist. Well, I think that I like to devote time to my hobbies and relaxation, but I don't see myself as like minimalist. I think my wife falls into four as the high tech jet setter. Her priority is finding the next vacation. She loves to spend time researching it. She loves going on vacation. I think this is where, where she would fall in this category. And it's probably something that people should think about if, if you, if you're a millennial, where do you fall here? And then maybe you start to create your create or craft your financial plan based upon how you actually want to spend your retirement years. And we do that for people today. You know, one of the main questions we ask someone who's getting ready to retire, what do you think you're going to spend the first 10 years of retirement? Cause that'll be different than the middle 10. Are you someone who wants to be a high tech jet setter and you're going to plan three or four vacations a year? Because if so, you probably have to budget more money early on until you hit 72, 73, 74, when all of a sudden flying to Europe twice a year isn't what you view as ideal. Right. And this is where, to me, these type of conversations, this is where having a unique financial plan and working with a firm is much more valuable than just operating on a rule of thumb, right? Because the rule of thumb is, well, you don't take out more than 4% of your portfolio. Well, I can create a very good argument that you can live on a higher distribution rate for the first eight, 10, 12 years. And you can, if you want to be a high tech jet setter, that might be what it takes to do that. Now, can you sustain that for 30, 35 years? No, that, that level of spending is not sustainable for that long, but it is sustainable for a certain period of time. We've done that for a lot of people. Can I spend an extra 15,000 a year? Yeah, you can do it for 10 years, 12 years, 11. People just need to know so they can plan. Right. They need to be armed with the information so they can make a good decision. That's the key. With that said, Elias, great show. Appreciate you having back for like the 97th episode you've been on. I don't know how many episodes we've had, but it's been a lot. Um, with that said, if anybody's looking to get a financial plan, you can go to btwellshow.com. Click get started. We'll have Elias give you a call. Thanks for listening. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. 
To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.